0: This is the Josh Hammer Show. What are you talking about? You're just gabbering. I know no, you like just to gabber. By the way, those are all easily fact I know, you like, to, I know fact- you like to, to lie. Anytime you're uncomfortable, he puts you. He put make the statistics up. up there. Those are all you're, facts. Your crime is what higher. Mean? So that was Thursday evening's debate between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and California Governor Gavin Newsom, a highly entertaining affair. I didn't know entirely what to expect coming into this one, wasn't sure whether it would get past superficial platitudes, but Ron DeSantis showed up. Ron DeSantis showed up Thursday evening. That was the fire and the passion that many of us have, have wanted to see from Ron DeSantis on, on the national stage for a while now. He, he took swings at Gavin Newsom, and to be clear, he had ample grounds for taking swings at Gavin Newsom because Gavin Newsom is literally central cast out of a superhero villain script. He looks the part, he talks the part, he acts the part. I mean, that guy is just fundamentally diabolical. I don't really know how else to describe it. And his track record as governor of California is just abominable. I mean, in virtually every metric that you can possibly rank, how someone governs a state, whether it is population outgrowth, whether whether it is skyrocketing crime, whether it is homelessness, drug overdoses, uh, billionaires, millionaires fleeing for greener and, frankly, redder pastures, Gavin Newsom has just epically, epically failed. He's the first governor of California who has ever presided over a decennial, so a, you know in the course of a census, which is every 10 years, California lost congressional seats for the first time ever since it became a state under Gavin Newsom. And that passion that we saw from Ron DeSantis, I have to think that it is, it is coming from a place where DeSantis is, is a conviction conservative. He is someone who was a founding member of the House Freedom Caucus when he joined the U.S. Congress. He is a right-winger. He he is a bona fide conservative, a bona fide right-winger. And as he has shown time and time again in Florida, he is not afraid to put his thumb on the scale for the forces of civilizational sanity against the forces of civilizational arson. We had him on the show earlier this year just trying to use government to promote his agenda. He is a red-blooded conservative. I say all of that because he really hates the left. He really does, which is a good thing, obviously. I wish that all Republican governors in America hated the left as much as Ron DeSantis hates the left. And you saw that play out. His constant belittling of Gavin Newsom, his calling him a liar accurately because Gavin Newsom was lying his butt off during that debate. I wish that we saw more of that from Ron DeSantis on the campaign trail. We're getting pretty close to the Iowa caucuses now. A month and a half or so away. Going to have to see a lot more of that passion. Including directed at fellow Republicans. Not just at the left. Going to have to see a lot more of that from Ron DeSantis. If he wants to pull off the upset there in Iowa. But as much as I personally enjoyed the debate on Thursday night, as much as I think many of the viewers probably enjoyed the debate on Thursday night, unless, of course, you're a Gavin Newsom fanboy. In that case, you hated the debate because you saw your potential 2024 and likely 2028 presidential candidate go down in, frankly, just a great ball of flames. I mean, the guy just got absolutely wiped out. But most people enjoyed the debate Thursday evening. But as much as we did, I think it was a bit of a distraction. It was a great job by Ron DeSantis, and as a fan of his, as a Floridian, as someone deeply sympathetic towards his presidential bid, I hope, I hope that it is a springboard towards increased momentum in Iowa, New Hampshire, and all across the country when it comes to the presidential primary. But I say that it is somewhat of a distraction because on Friday we also saw the expulsion of George Santos from the U.S. House. We'll talk about that a little bit in the next segment. And I I have no particular sympathies for George Santos. I wouldn't have tried to get him kicked out, but neither here nor there for present purposes. The point is that the fact that Congress is expelling a member... Underscores how dysfunctional Congress is right now. Matt Gates successfully defenestrated Kevin McCarthy in October. Well, we just had a spending deal that the new speaker, Mike Johnson, orchestrated, not entirely clear that it was any better than what Kevin McCarthy would have done. In fact, it probably isn't. The latest that I saw a few days ago, was that many, even inside the House Freedom Caucus, the very House Freedom Caucus that Ron DeSantis helped co-found when he was in Congress, the latest is that many currently in the House Freedom Caucus are even assenting, they are even agreeing to a very, very toast spending budget baseline, the likes of which you would expect fiscal conservatives to object to. So a deep complacency of sorts has really set in in the House Republican caucus. House Republicans right now, and they, of course, only control the House. They are down in the Senate, although they probably will take it back in 2024 with the upcoming retirement of Joe Manchin from West Virginia and others like that. It's a very favorable Senate map for Republicans in 2024. But right now, they only control the House. And they have, they have a very narrow margin in the House. Who knows what, what's going to happen in the upcoming special election also to replace George Santos, by the way. That's a, that's a pretty swing district there in Long Island. So they're facing a very narrow lead. We're coming up now less than a year away from a presidential election year. And for these past at least two budget standoffs, arguably three budget standoffs, if we want to go back as far as the one in June... House Republicans are trying to accomplish way too much. They don't have their priorities in order. They talk about cutting spending, although they're not willing to touch Medicare and Social Security, of course, so just trying to to reduce the size and scope of what former Trump OMB director Russ Vogt has aptly named the woke and weaponized bureaucracy. So they're talking a little bit about trimming spendings, trimming the excesses of the federal leviathan. They're talking a little bit about foreign policy, winding down the war in Ukraine, something that this show has been calling for for a long time now. And they're talking a little bit about the border and immigration in general. At some point in politics, you have to actually prioritize your issues. If you control one house of the two houses of the Congress and you don't control the presidency and you have a narrow majority when it comes even to that particular house, you're not going to be able to get it all. Heck, you'd be lucky to get one major thing accomplished from that particular perch, So it is is incumbent on House Republicans to rally around and to unify their consensus as to what issue they actually want to focus on, especially now as we head up towards Christmas and the holiday season, getting into a presidential election year. What is the one issue, Speaker Mike Johnson and House Republicans, that you want to make your issue in 2024 that you are willing to do some serious brinksmanship on? when it comes to budget fights, when it comes to debt ceiling fights, government shutdown threats, things like that, that you want to make a ripe political issue for whoever the presidential nominee is, whether it's Trump, DeSantis, Haley, who knows? And I would submit that the issue that you have to make your issue right now is the border. That is the issue where House Republicans should be focusing gosh, I don't know, 80 to 90% of their attention. That is the issue where the polling on Biden has been most consistently abominable over the past three years or so. And for good reason. It is an unprecedented national security, sovereignty, and humanitarian crisis there at the southern border. It's not gone any better, really, over the past few years. For that matter, what is going on with this misguided, or at least bizarrely not fully thought through, attempted impeachment of Joe Biden from Congressman James Comer of Kentucky. I honestly don't even know what's going on with that. Wouldn't it be better to pull out of that before a vote inevitably fails and focus on impeaching Alejandro Mayorkas, the DHS secretary? Tie that into the border issue. Again, make this your issue. If you're going to hold down on something, hold down on a border wall, hold out on reforming our asylum system in this country, which is absolutely out of control, on making sure that no economic migrants who are fleeing countries solely for economic reasons ever qualify on nonsensical BS grounds for quote-unquote asylum in this country, something that I literally wrote a memo about a decade ago almost when I was... In turning on Capitol Hill and Senate Judiciary Committee, reforming our asylum system is so overdue. This is an issue that rallies your base Republicans. It is an issue that plays right in to your most likely presidential nominee, who is Donald Trump. It obviously also plays in to Ron DeSantis if he can somehow pull it out as well. There, it's good politics. It's good policy, and it would evince a level of statesmanship that congressional Republicans have often not been able to show, which is when you are in a situation like this, when you control one house and have a narrow majority in that house, you have to know when to take your losses. You're simply not going to win everything. It's just not going to happen. The math doesn't work out. You have to prioritize certain issues, or in this case, one issue, It makes optimal sense to do so during a presidential election year. There are a lot of issues to run on. The whole Bidenomics thing, the problem is it's a little more difficult to message. The border is as simple as it gets. It's a massive, massive issue. Your caucus is united on it, Mike Johnson. I hope that you choose to focus on that issue. Josh Hammer Show. Some very high-profile deaths in American law and politics over the past few days. We saw the passing of Sandra Day O'Connor, the first female Supreme Court justice. Reagan nominee served for 25 years on the court. That was on Friday, two days earlier. Saw the passing of the great Henry Kissinger at the age of 100. The name Kissinger itself Simply saying that last name encapsulates really everything that there has been for the past 50 years about American statecraft and diplomacy. Now, these two figures are not without their criticisms. They are not without their flaws. But because they are both iconic Americans and both somewhere in the broader center-right orbit, they're both worth talking about at least a little bit. Sandra Day O'Connor served for 25 years. She served for a very long time. Now, the normal conservative take on Sandra Day O'Connor, which, spoiler alert, is pretty much my take, is that she was pretty disappointing. When you look at many of the marquee cases that came up during her tenure on the court, which was primarily overseen at the time by former Chief Justice William Rehnquist, who, funny enough, was actually Sandra Day O'Connor's ex-boyfriend when they were Stanford Law School classmates. Kind of a fun fact of Supreme Court history that not many people talk about. The actual jurisprudence from O'Connor was all over the map. So in the infamous abortion case Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992, which was the court's first direct opportunity to overturn Roe versus Wade, she whiffed. Alongside David Souter, Anthony Kennedy, and the other milk-toast, mealy-mouthed Republican nominees, there were many similar cases like that. In Grutter versus Bollinger, the affirmative action case from 2003, which, thank God, has now seen the ash heap of history in the aftermath of this past summer's Students for Fair Admissions landmark decision in Grutter versus Bollinger from 2003. Sandra Day O'Connor also also whiffed uh, many other examples as well. She had a, frankly, just totally garbage, plurality opinion in a very important case during the Bush-era war on terror in 2004, Hamdi versus Rumsfeld. It was, it was just a tortured opinion. But, but, you know, for a lot of less, less sexy, a lot, a lot of more kind of mundane cases she usually reached the right outcome. It it was somewhat of a meandering path to get there, but she usually reached the right outcome. More generally speaking, it really is interesting in retrospect, isn't it, that for all the talk of the feminist movement and the feminist movement's incestuous relationship with the political left in this country, it really is interesting that the first female Supreme Court justice actually came from an iconic conservative president, Ronald Reagan. And Sandra Day O'Connor, she retired, she resigned from the court at a fairly young age. She resigned, well, you know, young relatively speaking. She resigned at the age of 70, 75, 76 or so. Just for context, the court currently has plenty of people around that age range. We've had recently had justices serve well into their 80s, so 75 actually, relatively speaking, she could have... Tease that a little bit longer. So to her credit, she did resign at the right time in President Bush's second term. Samuel Alito, a rock-solid conservative, replaced her. But simply because of the duration of her tenure, she, she leaves a profound legacy. She does. She was an Arizonan to her core. Grew up on a ranch in rural Arizona, if memory serves Their law school there at Arizona State, where I did an event just a year and a half ago, is named after her. And despite her moderate legacy, she certainly has produced any number of stalwart former law clerks. Chief among them, at least for me, would be my friend Allison Ho, the wife of the Fifth Circuit Judge that I clerked for, Judge Jim Ho. Alison Ho, an amazing conservative lawyer, was a Sandra Day O'Connor law clerk. There are many other examples like that. She kind of faded into obscurity a bit after she resigned from the court. She actually appeared on Jeopardy in 2014, but aside from one-off, fairly random appearances like that, she mostly kept to herself in her post-court tenure. Sandra Day O'Connor... Dead at the age of 93 in Phoenix, Arizona, we wish her memory to be a blessing. May she rest in peace. Henry Kissinger also passed away this past week. Henry Kissinger's legacy is just as if not more complicated than Sandra Day O'Connor. It really is interesting that someone who was United States Secretary of State for less than three and a half years, a National Security Advisor for six years or so prior to that, it really is amazing that someone had this kind of legacy. There is there a lot that Henry Kissinger is remembered for and will be remembered for. His... Advocacy for detente with the Soviet Union was extraordinarily debated within the American right at the time. The Reagan administration, which succeeded Henry Kissinger's years as national security advisor and secretary said the Reagan administration was very hostile to detente with the Soviet Union. Ronald Reagan's doctrine on the Cold War with Gorbachev and the Soviets was much more straightforward. It was the morally dichotomous framing that we are more accustomed to, which is, quote, we win, they lose. And to the Reagan administration's great credit, they ended up doing that. They ended up essentially winning the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, the formal dissolution of the Soviet Union into the Russian Federation two years later in 1991. Nonetheless, one of the key parts, whether you supported detente or the Reaganite framing of the Cold War, one of the key parts leading to the downfall of the Soviet Union was Kissinger's famous diplomacy alongside Richard Nixon with China, where he helped peel China away from the communist Soviet sphere of influence. Now, that was a move that has not necessarily aged extraordinarily well as we have seen the rise of china as we have seen their intellectual property theft as we have seen their all sorts of 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 horrific actions on, on the world stage when it comes to the economy when it comes to diplomacy when it comes to military hegemony in the south and east china sea on the border with india and so forth there but at the time it was the prudent and logical move and henry kissinger deserves a ton of credit helping to make that happen, notwithstanding the fact that in the final decades of his life, in many ways, he kind of sold out to China. But I I guess that was unfortunately the predictable consequence of his move in the early 1970s. More generally speaking, the neoconservatives back from the 1960s and 1970s, the first generation of neoconservatives, really despised Henry Kissinger. And they despised him for his advocacy of realpolitik. He was a hardened realist to his core. I, too, am a realist. I, too, am critical of neoconservative and neoliberal dogma. I don't think that Henry Kissinger always properly applied the analytical lens of realpolitik to foreign policy. But he was pretty darn good at it. He may have been short-sighted and may have lacked long-term prescience in some instances. Perhaps it was impossible to know. I'm thinking here of the China example. But when it comes to the way to approach diplomacy on the global stage, where you have this Moral binary, where you can apply to each and every conflict all around the world. We've seen that way too often over the past year and a half when it comes to the Russia-Ukraine war. The same people who were critical of Kissinger back then are now, you know, all in for Ukraine, critical of Kissinger's real on that conflict. Or on the other hand, you can try to approach foreign policy and diplomacy from an unambiguous, unvarnished American national interest perspective. That is what Henry Kissinger tried to do. Again, he was hotly debated at times. He was more right more often than he was wrong. And to the idiot leftists who have been dancing on his grave, who haven't opened an IR or history textbook in their lives, who are spouting out leftist platitudes about various things that happened in Cambodia or Vietnam 40, 50 years ago, Give me a break and open a damn book. Henry Kissinger, rest in peace at age 100. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. The Josh Hammer Show. The so called truce in Gaza, thankfully, is over. What an emotionally draining week watching these innocent civilians cruelly taken hostage by a genocidal jihadist outfit in Gaza, swapped for convicted Palestinian Arab terrorists from Israeli prison. What an emotionally complex week it has been. And it was so obvious from the get-go what Hamas was trying to do. They initially agreed to this four-day truce. Ended up being about a full week, seven days or eight days or so. They kept on stringing it out, holding out the possibility of ever more hostages for ever more time spent in a lull in Gaza. For Hamas... The goal was obvious. Habituate the Europeans, the Americans, and the rest of the so-called international community to calm and tranquility, thereby making it much more difficult for Israel to resume its very necessary, if not existential, military operation there in Gaza. The Biden administration, by the way, may publicly say that it opposes a so-called permanent ceasefire and that it supports Israel's military operation finishing to its natural conclusion of eradicating Hamas, their actions belie their rhetoric. The Biden administration at this point is staring at domestic polling that utterly terrifies it when it comes to the conflict in Israel and Gaza in particular. They are considerably down to Donald Trump or pretty much any of the other possible Republican nominees in 2024. They are losing right now in virtually all of the swing states that matter, including, based on the polling that I have seen, Michigan, which is home to the United States' largest Muslim American Arab population. The Biden administration has had for the past month or so the exact same incentives on the conflict that Hamas has which is to wind this thing down sooner rather than later. You can almost see Joe Biden torn. It's hard to see it because the guy is senile and can barely put together a coherent sentence. But you can kind of see it if you take out a magnifying glass and look carefully. This is someone who speaks all the time about his trip to visit then-Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir way back in the day, back in the 1970s. He loves talking about how this was a transformative trip for him, how it really instilled in him at a very early age the importance of Israel for the Jewish people, for the American people, for the world, and so forth. So you can kind of see him conflicted by this decades-long affinity, and I want to be very clear, it's not like Joe Biden is, is a rock-ribbed, you know, settle, all of Judea and Samaria-style Zionist. He's not, but but he does certainly have kind of a decades-long innate affinity or sympathy of sorts. So you can kind of see him tortured by this while staring at the domestic polling. But in any event, Hamas has openly violated the truce in numerous ways. They fired on IDF soldiers in northern Gaza, they Murdered in cold blood, tragically, three Israelis at a bus stop in Jerusalem, six more were wounded. Hamas claims credit for that attack. So some ceasefire, some truce this was, with Hamas openly claiming credit for the slaying of yet more innocent Israelis. So the truce is over, the warplanes and the tanks have their engines revved up again. What is this going to look like over the next few weeks then? Well, the truce for Hamas came at a very opportune moment because Israel had effectively gained operational control of Gaza City, which is the Hamas stronghold in the northern Gaza Strip, which is where Hamas allegedly has their preeminent command and control center underneath Al-Shifa Hospital, and just generally speaking, the largest city in the Strip. And at the time of of the truce... Israel had turned its attention towards southern Gaza, namely Khan Yunis, which is the Hamas stronghold in southern Gaza. It's going to get ugly. Again, these images are going to continue to terrify all the people that have been terrified for the past almost two months or so now, namely liberals, progressives, Palestinian sympathizers, and so forth all throughout the Western world. As you continue to see these images pour out, it is important to bear in mind something that this audience already knows well, but it's worth reiterating, which is that each and every civilian death that you see in this conflict is attributable to Hamas, which indiscriminately fires at Israeli civilians, murders, rapes them, and then uses their own civilians as human shields. They've been doing this for the past 15 years. You know, I forgot who tweeted this, but it was a very astute point. If you look at what Israel uses its money for, Israel uses its money for bomb shelters for its people and for missile defense, such as Iron Dome, to keep its people safe. Hamas in Gaza uses the money for the tunnels, for the weaponry, for all the Missile caches, things like that. And then instead of keeping their people in bomb shelters, they literally used them as cannon fodder. The dichotomy, once again, could not be starker. More to the point, there is simply no alternative but for Israel to finish the job in Gaza once and for all. Anything short of complete and utter eradication of Hamas would have catastrophic consequences for the future viability of the Jewish state. After the pogrom of October 7th, Hamas cannot stand, period. There is no first world country that would ever permit its citizens to live with a constantly looming specter, a constantly looming Nazi-esque specter, the likes of which we saw on that Black Sabbath, October 7th, 2023. And even more to the point, Israel has to take out Hamas to reestablish deterrence on all its other fronts, up north on the Lebanese front when it comes to Hezbollah. You know who was licking his chops, probably getting a good laugh out of that truce over the past week? Hassan Nasrallah up in Lebanon, to say nothing of the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei in Tehran. Judea and Samaria, the West Bank itself, is probably going to get hot over the next year as well. It's already been pretty hot. It's going to get hotter. There's going to have to be a serious military operation probably in Nablus, Janine, and some of the other Islamist, jihadist hotspots there in the West Bank. And finally, for Jews all around the world who have been witnessing this skyrocketing anti-Semitism, who see the cop cars outside our shuls or kosher restaurants, Israel simply must deal a lethal blow to Hamas just so that Jews all around the world can sleep better at night. It actually really is that simple. God willing, Prime Minister Netanyahu is up to the test. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. josh hammer show it's Ah! hammer time go the national transportation safety board wants to limit how fast new cars can go so the ntsb has recommended all new automobiles come equipped with technology meant to make speeding difficult or impossible this is the sort of crass nanny statism that the American people intuitively abhor with every fiber of their peeing. Now, obviously, I, I am not an anarcho-capitalist or or a libertarian ideologue. There obviously is such thing as prudent regulation. When it comes to, to driving automobiles, I believe in such thing as speed limits. Not every road should be the German Autobahn or anything like that there. But the notion that new cars have a built-in speed limit on them? I mean, I'm sorry. There actually is something quintessentially American. This is not just nostalgia. This really is kind of a thing in our DNA. There is something quintessentially American about just being on a wide-open country road, whether you're in a sports car, pickup truck, or whatever, and just gunning it. I mean, what is more American than that iconic image of a two-lane highway with some desert or prairie landscape in the background. You know, you got a convertible, you got a, got a girl at your side, you blast the radio, and just floor it. This is not the kind of thing that the American people, I don't think, if I have any connection remaining with the American people, I don't think that they're going to go for this. This is a very, very bad idea. At what point also would you just ditch this half measure and just do the full robotic Automatic car thing in the first place, the whole self driving car phenomenon. That's probably what the NTSB is going for here. They're probably trying to habituate the American people towards ultimately phasing out driving cars and phasing in self driving cars, which the technology currently is not really equipped to produce and mass on a nationwide level, but very much looks like this is a first step towards that. As someone who is a lifelong car enthusiast myself who very much enjoys the the art of driving i have a very simple message to the national transportation safety board which is you guys can go to hell with this one umass boston drops faculty dei requirements in june fire that's the free speech on campus group they learned that umass boston was requiring some faculty applicants to submit statements reflecting their quote-unquote experience and commitment to dei principles. So this is a fantastic development. This is deep in the heart of Blue America. This is a public university in Boston, Massachusetts, right in Elizabeth Warren's own backyard, the backyard of Harvard University, many of the leading liberal institutions and leading individual liberals in America. So if they, if they are backing off of requiring that faculty bend the knee and kowtow to the DEI agenda, the, the diversity, equity, and inclusion agenda that ends up being not so thinly veiled racism against white Americans, Asian Americans, Christians, Jews, Mormons, and so forth. If if even UMass Boston in in, in the heart, in the heart of the leftist Blue State Leviathan, if they are backing off this, it's just another reminder. That we are actually winning on this issue. Conservatives have been winning on the DEI issue. They have been winning on the ESG issue. These are winning issues right now for conservatives. And the proper lesson to take from this is not to take our feet off of the gas pedal. If you are in a red state where you have strong Republican majorities in your state legislature, if you have a Republican governor, the move is very simple just ban the damn thing, just ban it. That's what we've done in Florida. That's what they're doing in Texas. That's what they just did in Iowa when it comes to public universities. That is the very simple model. But for now, credit to UMass Boston. Very, very encouraging sign. A genuine white pill there. House votes to axe woke small business lending rule. So the rule in question here requires covered financial institutions to collect and report certain personal information to the Consumer Financial Protection Board. ...on small, small businesses that apply for credit, but the key part of the story is that among the information they want to collect are data on race, ethnicity, and gender, of course, of the small business owner... ...and whether the business is owned by minorities, women, or LGBT people. Good for the house. Again, this is the sort of crass, woke culture war issue that the American people intuitively do not like. We are winning on these issues, people. We really are winning on these issues. There is no reason whatsoever, I mean, not only is there no reason whatsoever why any kind of government institution should care about things like this, should make lending decisions on information like this, not only should the government not care, it's un-American to purport to care. To take this into consideration is literally the antithesis. Of all that this country was founded for when it comes to the Declaration, when it comes to the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th through the 15th Amendments, when it comes to the Civil Rights Act, when it comes to the colorblind nature of our Constitution, something that I just spoke about in a Feral Society talk in St. Louis just a few weeks ago. When it comes to the colorblind nature of the American rule of law, this stuff is toxic. So good for Speaker Johnson and the House on this one. Disney woke agenda hurting bottom line. A recent company filing with the SEC included a reference to, quote, risks relating to misalignment with public and consumer tastes. That's juicy. They continued, quote, Consumers' perceptions of our position on matters of public interest, including our efforts to achieve certain of our environmental and social goals, often differ widely and present risks to our reputation and brands. That's from Disney's SEC filing. Recall also, is it back in late September when the Former and, again, current CEO of Disney, Bob Iger, told investors that Disney will, quote, quiet the noise when it comes to the culture war. Well, Disney's latest box office film has been a total bomb. They have not come even remotely close to recuperating the costs that went into producing that film. So, yeah, I I mean, credit for some sense of of self-awareness here. But the way they phrase this is just so funny to me. I mean, this is so cleverly... Savily crafted it's classic lawyer language quote risks relating to misalignment with public and consumer taste dude stop hiding the ball and just say what is on all of our minds which is that you commies have gone totally woke and the american people ain't having it you have totally alienated at least half of your customer base you know back in the day disney was as american as apple pie and maybe cheating a little bit on your income tax returns. Disney was an iconic American company. It was not a political issue that divided the left and the right here. Disney has gone woke and increasingly they are going broke. My only message would be keep the pain coming until they fully, fully reverse course. Finally, some breaking news on Friday. Congressman George Santos expelled from Congress. This is a bipartisan vote. I mean, not a ton of Republicans joined, but... Certainly some did. Look, uh, what is there to say about George Santos? I mean, the guy is, he's obviously a con artist. He he is clearly not a particularly good person, to put it mildly. If I were a betting man, I would place a wager that he ends up in a jail cell at some point. Now, I, I had been skeptical of this effort to expel George Santos from Congress for the very, Admittedly, somewhat cynical reason that I don't see a a compelling need necessarily for House Republicans to police their own caucus to this extent, while House Democrats manifestly refuse to do so, while Rashida Tlaib is chanting genocidal anti-Jewish slogans on the floor of the U.S. House, from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free, things like that there. And I have some concerns as well as to whether a Republican will be able to replace George Santos in that district it's a competitive congressional district there on Long Island but the most recent allegations against him his, his his federal indictments there the use of campaign funds to benefit himself look at the end of the day I wouldn't necessarily have wanted to instigate this vote for what we just said but it's really hard to pity George Santos too much he is not at all a remotely sympathetic character and like I said, I, I suspect that you will most likely see him in a jail cell at some point in the not so distant future. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too.